Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. So as we've already discussed, Jacob, our ancestor, knows that his days are coming to an end. And so he calls his children and his grandchildren, as you heard, to come hear what will happen to them after he dies. He's really nice to the first two, as, <laughs> as you heard. It's a very powerful instinct, this instinct to sort of make closure at the end of life and be direct and finally say the things that you've wanted to say or that you've been thinking um, that, that finally in these last moments, you know, a person maybe feels able to share in a way that they were not before. Um, and, and apparently in Jacob's case, he's about to be psychic because he tells them, he's about to tell them what will befall them in the days to come. I would lean in for that. So it turns out what Jacob offers the rest of his children is very much like the words my grandmother had for me when I visited her on her deathbed about mm, eight years ago. I flew to Long Beach, California. Um, for what I knew would be our last conversation. And she and I had had a strained relationship really ever since I developed an interest in Judaism when I was about 18. Um, she thought that Judaism was a waste of my talent and education um, and no amount of arguing or passion, you know, like grandma, this is like your ancestors would be so proud of me, you know, like none of that could persuade her otherwise. And we have some good moments, but um, I, I eventually just gave up hope that she would ever be proud of me for um, becoming who I became. And I tried to enjoy her anyway. Um, she was about four feet tall and blonde, a bleach blonde hair. Ble I mean, like the pictures of her as a little girl looked like me, but the ones of growing up, she looked like Marilyn Monroe. Um, she wore embroidered Mexican dresses. She lived in Southern California. She broke every rule that you, you know, could, could devise, she would break it. She married my grandfather when she was still a minor, um, or, at least, or at least not yet 21. Not clear exactly how old she was, but we're pretty sure both she and he lied about their age. Um, they were married for over 50 years. Um, she was a character. Everybody who knew her would say she was a character. Um, and, and some of them would say that lovingly, and some of that would say that as a euphemism, you know? Um, and, and maybe you've heard me talk about her before. Um, she was always more interested in the outfit this rabbi wore than the fact that I was a rabbi, you know, um, or how skinny this rabbi was than the fact that I was a rabbi. Um, and so, you know, but she was my grandma. She was my grandma. And as she was dying, I got to the hospital and I, I kind of thought to myself, like, maybe, maybe now, maybe now is the moment when I'll get like that affirmation or that blessing that I really like yearned for my whole adult life. And I got close to her bed and I leaned in and I said, hi, grandma, it's me, Lizzie. I love you. And she said, I'm going to die and you're still not married. <laughs> and I smile because so, so in life, as in life, so too in death. You know, it's like we think, we think that that death may somehow, that the prospect of death may somehow, you know, bring people to the better version of themselves. 
but very often, actually, it's just the end of the same life they always had, <laughs> right? Lived right that exact way up until the very end. And so unless a person makes improvements in life that should lead you to the kind of death that you want, there's absolutely no reason to expect that the prospect of death should somehow change any of us. So Jacob was actually more like my grandma Harriet than the nice guy that you heard from Rabbi Dina. If you just came into the room when he gave the blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh, you might think, oh, what a sweet grandpa. But I mean, the kinds of things he said to the rest of his sons were not, were not very nice. He carried grudges in life and he carried them into his death. He brought them right, right up into there. So there were, you know, not a deep sense of lessons learned for those kids um, or for him and, and definitely no catharsis for the survivors, you know, in that moment. It's really hard. It's hard when that happens. Um, I feel like even as I'm speaking, there are some nods that like, yes, this is a familiar experience. We all wish it were different, but very often it's not. But this is not the only way to go. Joseph in this story provides a counterexample. So Joseph also dies this week. For the last number of weeks, we've been reading about the character of Joseph. Um, and his death is actually exactly what I imagine wanting to, um, wanting to suggest that we figure out how to practice in life. So for context, for those who haven't been either watching Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat or keeping up with the flow of the Parsha, remember Joseph was the youngest brother he was the youngest of Jacob's 11 children. Um, and he had big dreams, big dreams of grandeur, like dreams that all of his brothers would bow down to him. And he told his brothers these dreams. And so they really were annoyed by him. And so annoyed, in fact, that they thought, you know what, let's kill our brother. Let's kill him. And then, you know, they get to the moment where they're going to do it. And they're like, you know what, let's just sell him into slavery, make a few shekels, you know? And so they disappear their brother um, into what they imagine will be, you know, they'll never see him or hear from him again. He is sold into slavery in Egypt, where he serves as a servant with so much integrity that he refuses to sleep with the maiden of the house where he's serving. She is seducing him and he says, no, I don't want to. And so she accuses him of rape and he is thrown in prison. Um, and there he sits and he interprets dreams of course, and he interprets the dreams of the people in prison. And then one of those guys goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's having dreams. Pharaoh can't understand them. They bring up Joseph to interpret the dreams. Joseph does a great job um, and eventually is promoted to a job that's effectively like prime minister of Egypt, because not only can he interpret dreams, he knows what to do with the interpretations. He has good ideas for social policy. He understands that there's going to be a famine and that he actually knows how to conserve resources and distribute them in this case, and he saves all the people, and lo and behold, he saves his own family who come begging to Egypt for food. They don't realize it's him, of course, when they come asking, and Joseph is able to save his whole family, and eventually he sort of, he reveals himself to them. There's this big, tearful family reunion, and the whole family, all of the, Jacob, all of his children, all of their wives, all of their grandchildren, all of their livestock, relocate to Egypt. That's how the Jewish people get to Egypt. And so all of this has happened, yet after Jacob dies, the brothers who are all there cannot fathom that Joseph would not be carrying a grudge still after what they did to him. Like he, he seemed to have forgiven them very, very easily. 
there's just no way that what they could have done, you know, that he would be able to forgive without, you know, holding a grudge. And so they assume that because he has not taken revenge while Jacob was alive, now that Jacob is dead, surely, you know, Joseph has it coming for them. And so he says to his brothers, don't worry about what you did to me. I know that you intended harm. I know you did. But God intended it for good. And because of what you did, I ended up here in the position to save all of you. So really, guys, like no hard feelings. Just promise me you'll arrange to have my bones brought back up to the land of our ancestors when you guys return there one day. We're cool. Like what on earth could allow Joseph to actually give his brothers that catharsis? They have been carrying around this guilt their entire adult lives, we now know. So one, one thing that allows him to forgive in this way is because he actually knows that they have made tshuva, repented. They have changed. He knows this because he, he toyed with them a little bit when they didn't know who he was, when he was the prime minister and he's wearing makeup and he's wearing royal clothes and he's speaking Egyptian. They have no idea who he is. He knows exactly who they are. And, and he, he kind of, he toys with them and he tests them to see if they will actually um, take care of their youngest brother, Benjamin. And they do. They do take care of their youngest brother, Benjamin. They not only take care of him, but they, they sacrifice their own comfort and well-being and maybe even life on his behalf. And Joseph can see that they have changed. So that's one thing. But more important, Joseph has actually been practicing forgiveness and practicing living life in a way that doesn't make this exceptional, but actually makes this simply an extension of how he has practiced his life, right? When Pharaoh tries to give Joseph credit for interpreting the dreams and for creating all this great policy, Joseph says, no, 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 it wasn't me. It's God. God interpreted your dreams. I'm just the vessel. I'm just the vessel. There's a, a, a bigger force at work. I, I can't claim to understand. It's just working through me. It's just working through my life, right? Could you imagine having the things that happened to Joseph happen and, and just saying to yourself every day, this is what God has planned for my life for reasons I don't understand, but I will just have faith. I will, I will have faith and I don't know how, but I will trust that good will come from this. I will make good come from this. Not just that I trust that it will happen organically, but actually I will, I will seek out the good, the tov from the tevet. And that's what Joseph did day after day after day, year after year, right? From the pit that his brothers threw him in to being a servant, an unpaid slave, to being in, a, in another pit, in a deeper pit, in a prison. He just held that faith. Good will come from this. I will make good come from this. During the, during the many years when I was single, such that my grandma, I mean, when my grandma said what she said, it was like, it was like, you know, squeezing lemon juice in a wound because it's not like I wasn't trying, grandma, you know, <laughs> like I'm not sitting here trying to be single, grandma, you know, but, but I, the truth is throughout, throughout that whole period of life, I actually did have faith that what was happening in my life was supposed to happen. Like, that this is, this is actually the course of my life, not, not by accident, but actually um, by some kind of greater design that will become evident as my life unfolds. 
Um, and, I, and I believe that, and I still believe that, but it's frustrating to be in the middle of a plan, you know, of not of your design <laughs> and not knowing where it's going. It is frustrating. And it's hard to believe that, it's hard to believe that there is some catharsis or some redemption on the other side of it, you know, when you're going through it. And it's especially hard when the pain that we're feeling is because we're missing something that it appears, you know, so easily to come to others. You know, whether it is finding a partner or having a child or finding a meaningful job that you love or having good mental or physical health, like it can be hard to do what Joseph does, which is actually hold the pain of the experience, not negate the pain of the experience, but actually feel it. And, and also simultaneously have a sense of possible redemption to hold both of those things in both hands. And not to put pressure, you know, on yourself to like make meaning of every moment, you know, as you're going through it or to prematurely sort of, you know, discover the lesson here, but actually have faith in the process of life unfolding, you know, and to discover our answers as we go and to affirm the answers our friends are developing for themselves, even if they don't make sense to us. This is actually the reason why when, when somebody is trying to get pregnant or is pregnant in Jewish tradition, we don't say mazel tov as if the end is baked into the beginning. You say, which means may everything happen in the right time. May everything happen in the right time. May everything unfold as, as it's meant to for the good. We don't know what uh, 2022 holds, right? Even, even in the last few days, it feels that things have, have shifted and changed under our feet and maybe we're on the verge of going backward. And between covid and climate change, and school shootings, and just the realities of all being in mortal human bodies that break and get sick and you know, don't work right all the time. All of us are living with the constant, the constant reality of mortality. It feels a lot closer to the surface, I think, um, than it usually does, even though I think the human tendency is to hold it as far away as we can and try to sort of shelve that reality and not think about it as much as humanly possible. And most people will say, you know, if you ask, like, how are you doing? Fine. Surviving. Okay. You know, some version of, like, not 100%, but making it as if there's going to be a time that's not like this time, as if we will, like, make it through this nightmare into the sunlight and I question, I question that approach because as we've seen, even death, even the actual prospect of death does not change people. <laughs> and so if that is the case, then we need to you know, be the change we want to see in the world. We need to make the spaces and places and, and be with the people who affirm the people we want to be and create the song and the laughing and the spaces for love and the spaces for falling out of love and for being held in our messiness that we, that we want, that we need, and not wait for that and not wait for some future time when the conditions will be more right for that but actually imagine that the conditions in which we currently sit are precisely the right conditions for us to create the life that we want to live, even if they're not the conditions we would have designed for ourselves inside of us or outside of ourselves. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for this space. I'm grateful for all of you. I'm grateful for a space to 
be able to laugh and cry and be held in all of our messiness, whatever's going on in the world and whatever's going on inside of us. I want to bless us that in the face of not knowing what the future will bring, each one of us actually believes that we can do our unique part, our unique tikkun, to create the good we can right where we are, right where we are, maybe right in here or right within our like little four amot, our, the, just the space around us, and to affirm for everyone else who we know is probably working really hard to do the same, that they're doing a great job too. So Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of T and Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.